Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity to learn more about your word. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ and save us sinners and from our sins. Lord, bless this time, bless day, bless uh, the services will go forward after this class. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought we'd start with Psalm 113 this morning. Psalm 113. I have the same problem. Psalm 113. Psalm 113 and wants to read it out. Let's go ahead and get started. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Do his servants praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, the glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits in the throne of God? He stoops down to look at the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as the happy daughter of children. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Um, I, I chose that psalm this morning um, not because it's directly related to our text this morning. We're going to pick up in Hebrews, I think. Um, but because it's always good to know who God is, that He is great, that He is good, and that He can be trusted. And that's the heart of that psalm, and we want to praise Him for that. So I've uh, been gone for a few weeks. I was in Colorado. Uh, I, when I left, I was hobbling a little bit. Um, I, I can say that uh, with some help, I got to the top of the 13,214 foot uh, peak, which is the highest fire lookout in the continental U.S., uh, Fairview Mountain, Fairview Peak. So that was good rehabilitation. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm not limping today, uh, not even really favoring my other leg, so it's, that was a good vacation. Um, Sean was filling in while I was gone. And he told me that you guys finished Hebrews, is that right? No. <laughs> so, I think where we left off, who can tell me where we left off and where we should pick up chapter 8? We read through chapter 8, I believe. <laughs> Who can tell me what Hebrews is about? For those that, uh, I, guess, I guess I should announce first off, there's a, a few outlines left of Hebrews in my cheat notes uh, up here at this table by the door. There's some 3 by 5 cards and a basket there. So if you have questions that you don't want to ask during class for whatever reason, you can grab a 3 by 5 card, drop the question on there, and drop it in the basket. And then I'll address it next week. 
or if you have a question you don't want to ask in class and, and uh, you have your phone with text capability, you can text my wife Karen the question and she'll ask it. And her number is 
is to bring them into God's presence. So when we looked at some of the Old Testament uh, form of how people came into the presence of God, how did that occur? Every year, come up for the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies. Yeah, so <clears throat> there's in that statement, every year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to pre present uh, an atoning sacrifice for the people, blood sacrifice. <coughs> it's a lot wrapped up in that statement because it presumes uh, a whole, I use the word cultic system, a whole. Uh, religious practice about how people uh, come into the presence of God. And we know that God sought us first. We find that in the very beginning of the Bible. And that it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes through the very goods. Or the goods, 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 very good. Right? Um, and man was created in God's image. Very good. Right? God said, this is very good. And in the uh, course of history, man made uh, a choice to uh, not choose God, but to choose himself. To choose himself as a discerner of good and evil, and um, the discerner of right and wrong. And as a result of that, man separated himself from God, because it wasn't man's appropriate position to do that. Uh, he was a delegated authority as a king over God's creation. So if you read the, the scripture about man's job, that's what he was set up to do. He was a delegate for God as a caretaker. And that when he rebelled um, and that separation occurred, that separation was very profound because that separation led to death. Because there is no life outside of God. So if you're no longer together with God, or outside of God, you're in death. The very first thing that God did was he went looking. The grace of God was shown before he even had a conversation with man. He went looking for him. And he found them, and then he had let them discover uh, the, the impact of the problem. And then he covered them. He provided a sacrifice at that time and covered the man and the woman. And what we see um, throughout history is God's progressive revelation of himself, his person and his character and his, his plan, his purpose to humanity and the human response back to that revelation. So we see that through covenants, which I think that's what Sean focused on, right? And that's actually what we see captured in chapter 8 of Hebrews is that we're reminded of the covenant of God. We're reminded of that covenant in chapter 7 and that um, we understand that that covenant provides an anchor. It gives us hope. It's an anchor for our soul. Um, so what we see is that the progressive revelation of God uh, the covenants that come into play, and then this cult, cultic practice that is put together to help draw man into God's presence. But there's a problem. When uh, you give man... Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll use a modern way of framing it. You give man a machine, 
he'll tear it apart to figure out how the thing works so that he can master the machine. That he can be the master, not letting God be the master. And so when cultic practice was presented uh, through Moses um, and Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, man made that a, a uh, mechanical practice, made it religion. And it's not that religion is bad. It's just that it was never uh, intended to be that which brings us into God's presence by itself. That it's an external practice that people do. But what God was trying to show people that it's really a condition of the heart that this practice is intended to help us enter into. That it's that condition of the heart that brings us into God's presence. So that's really the focus of Hebrews is about this internal condition um, of the heart that God brings about to allow us to be in his presence. And that that is the most important thing to him. So I would say, what's, what's more important, the law or God? Even though the law is an expression of who God is, the law is not God. <coughs> The law can't bring you into God's presence. Cultic practice can't bring you into God's presence. But there is one who can, and that is the high priest. And so the author of Hebrews is going about his exposition to reveal to us this high priest, uh, who he is, what his qualifications are, and what he's done for us. And then comes, uh, then comes an application. It's like, once you know this, what do you do with it? And that's when we get into chapter 11 and 12 and 13. So with that background, I'll open it up for questions real quick before I jump in. Because what I'd like to do is I'd like to read through chapter 8, chapter 9, and through chapter 10, verse 18. Any questions? Yes? No? Okay. Let's go ahead and... Uh, I'm going to read in the New American Standard, because that's the Bible that I have. So if you're following along in the NIV, you may see a few word changes. Try and catch the, the meaning, not the nuance of the word. Um, we'll focus on some of the nuances, but for the most part, see if you can catch the main drift of this passage. It says, in, starting in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now the main point is in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary <clears throat> that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for says, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. 
for finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared... The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only, the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls, of goats and bulls, and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify the, uh, the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed, committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Speaking of covenant as a will. For a covenant is only valid when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. And when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. 
And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place, year by year, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men uh, once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer, continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have been conscious of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world... He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their minds I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. <clears throat> Long passage. <laughs> but it's a great exposition on the high priest and how this whole practice that was established through Moses of a tabernacle as the place where God would meet with his people. Um, that, that is the purpose of the tabernacle. So God uh, appeared to specific individuals uh, in the course of history to reveal his plan and his promise. And then he set up uh, a way for the people to come into his presence. And that's what the tabernacle was for 
And there was, if you get on the, the internet, you Google tabernacle or temple, um, you'll see what that looked like. So the people would camp out around this tabernacle. And the outer courts were where common folk like you and me, although not like you and me because we're not Jewish, <laughs> would would gather around and they would come into the presence of the priests, the intercessors. Then the priests would make a sacrifice on their behalf. They would take the people's sacrifice of various types and they would present them on the altar. Well, they would then also maintain the worship that was taking place inside the, the, the tent or the, uh, we called it the holy place. And in there... Uh, there are specific things to help us remember God. So the way that this tabernacle was set up is that the entrance to it was always um, facing east. So today, if you, uh, well, let's say today, uh, it still occurs. There's uh, on the on the uh, Temple Mount where the temple was. There's now a mosque. Um, it's interesting that that mosque's main entry is on the west, not on the east. Um, but in uh, Jesus' time, we had the second temple that was built by Herod. So Solomon's temple had been destroyed, but Herod wanted to build a greater temple than Solomon's, which was not possible, but he did it anyway, uh, tried to. And he constructed it such that the entry was to the east, and from the east, uh, the people would enter into the courts, and then there would be the entry into the holy place. Um, and if you look at it, it's this huge gateway structure coming in, doorway structure. And then within that, when you would walk in, so the sun would be to my back, um, on the right hand, you would have uh, the showbread, or the bread of presence. There were 12 loaves that were prescribed and we think of the bread of life from our understanding, if we're trying to understand some of the symbolism there, with God's uh, sustenance. And you'll notice that the author of Hebrews doesn't dwell in on those things, because what the symbolism is must not be as important as what's really going on there. <coughs> but that's what you would see. You'd see the showbread off to your right. Off to your left, you'd see uh, the lampstand which the priests would go in daily and they would uh, make sure that that showbread was fresh and that that lamp had oil so that it was continually burning, that the light of God was always present, that the uh, provision of God was always there. And then in the middle, um, and there's debate about this, whether it was outside in the holy place or it was behind the curtain, um, would be the altar of incense and they would continually have this smoke going up, which we read symbolism of that in the New Testament as well, representing the prayers of the people right, before God. Now whether it was outside in the holy place or inside behind the curtain, um, in Hebrews the author here said it was inside the curtain. Um, so we looked as, as we were reading through it, he's stepping us through this, See if I can find it here real quick. Let's 
behind the second veil, there's a tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, having, a, this is uh, chapter 9, verse 3 and 4, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. So, the author of Hebrews, um, and we're not sure exactly where he had his uh, tradition from, or his uh, revelation from, he was probably of um, uh, Hellenistic Jewish heritage, and just knowing how he writes. So he probably was using Septuagint. Um, so in that tradition, they had the, the altar inside the Holy of Holies. There was a, a curtain there that was separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies is where the actual um, presence of God would reside. So in uh, Moses' uh, time, God actually would dwell there in the Holy of Holies, and the high priest would go in and make an atonement for the people. And we understand that that occurred, uh, sometimes called the Shekinah glory of God, up through the time of uh, Ezekiel. So you read Ezekiel's uh, God leaving the temple uh, account, and that would have occurred then in the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem. God left, and when he left, he left from that Holy of Holies, went out to the holy place, then he went out through the, the door, which is facing east, and then he proceeded east, this is the account in Ezekiel, over what is now the Mount of Olives, and then God's presence, direct presence, left the people at that point. It's a terrible story when you read about it that the people had degenerated to such a point that God could no longer be present among them. Yes? East. Um, the significance of it being facing east is it because that's the way he went? Or, or what's the significance of east of always facing east? In, uh, um, in the Near East uh, communities and culture, east is the primary direction. So, uh, from our Western culture, uh, we orient everything north, right? So, uh, but what they did is they oriented everything east because that's the rising of the sun. That's the beginning of the day. And there's lots of um, symbolism in that, not just life, but the whole origins uh, that all things come from God, you know, and so... They oriented everything east. So if you look at their maps, they're not oriented with the north compass, they're oriented with the eastern compass. So um, is there something magical about east? No. But it was intended to show um, the presence of God in all things. And so that's why it's oriented that way. It seems to me there was also a religious aspect of it. The Egyptians had as their um, highest god, the, the Ra, the sun god. Right. And so God had them orient themselves so the priests had their back toward the sun when they worshipped him. Yes. And in Ezekiel chapter 8, you find God showing Ezekiel. Now look at what I'm seeing here. The priests are, have all turned their back to the temple and are worshiping the sun right and so it's a it's a, a symbol or well showing 
how false religion is taking right. over. Where the true God really is, mm-hmm. not a sun god. Um, yes, and that, that's that's the whole the whole point of it. And then, um, so but again, there's nothing magical about these, but it is kind of an in-your-face, yeah. uh, just like the mosque today having the main entrance on the opposite side from the temple. Um, so. But that's, that's the, the orientation that you would see. And so as you'd come in, you'd see the, the showbread, you'd see the lampstand, uh, you'd see the, the, the altar of incense. Then behind that would be the Ark of the Covenant, and he lists what the elements of the Ark of the Covenant were, that there was a jar of manna, that there was Aaron's rod that had budded, there was the covenant that was made with Moses. And that above that was uh, the cherubim, where God dwelt in the middle. And then uh, what they're standing on, to use the phrase, is the mercy seat of God, where they would actually offer the blood sacrifice. So those of you that have seen Indiana Jones and uh, the Lost Ark, uh, that is a picture of what the Ark of the Covenant would have looked like. You know, in, in Hollywood's version. But the idea is, is that it had this lid, and that was the actual mercy seat of God, and that it had sharp points on the corners. Those are the horns of, of that altar, the mercy seat, where the blood would actually be offered, it would be sprinkled. So that's the picture that is being drawn upon by the author of Hebrews. But he's saying, this was just a picture, this is just a copy <coughs> of what really is occurring in heaven. That this different kind of high priest that we have, and he's, uh, go back to chapter 8, says, now if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. So there was already a, uh, a religious ritual which had its priesthood to do what was according to the law. But the law couldn't save people. It never could. It was never intended to, as we find out. And it says that uh, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when uh, he was about to erect the tabernacle, he said, See, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So that reference is when Moses went up Mount Sinai and met with God to get the covenant, right? to get the commandments, the Ten Commandments. So those of you that have seen Hollywood Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston coming down the towers, right? When he was up on the mountain, God was showing him the program, was showing him the plan. And uh, the description of that is captured in the law, just like the description of what's going to happen in the final stages of human history is captured in Revelation. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have spent any time reading Revelation, but it's pretty weird, right? It's got a lot of symbolism in it. It's got a lot of uh, reference to Old Testament, uh, a lot of um, things that are really difficult to understand because it's trying to describe in human language something that is actually occurring in a spiritual realm. Well, that's what was happening for Moses, he was seeing what God's plan is of how God 
is going to redeem his people and be present with his people. And he redeems them so that they can be present with him. So it's not like God is giving you a bunch of ordinances to follow because he wants to see how you're going to behave. That's not the point. The point is that you can be in his presence. Because in his presence is life. God is good. God is great. He can be trusted. That's where we want to be. And that's the, the whole point of the cultic practice was to bring us into God's presence. But it, by the ritual, it never could. But by the redemption of the heart, it can. And so that's why it goes in chapter 8. He starts out saying, introducing the high priest, the, the current priesthood serves a copy and a shadow of heavenly things, just as Moses warned. But now, he, the uh, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. <coughs> so it isn't that the, the first uh, covenant was um, bad or insufficient. It just wasn't what was necessary for the high priest to actually bring about redemption and salvation. It's more descriptive rather than prescriptive that makes sense. So then he goes and he states without apology in any way he has very little comment on it he states the uh, new covenant as it's revealed in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 uh, verses 31 through 34. That's what you find in chapter 8 uh, verses 8 through uh, 12. It's a, it's a verbatim quotation and you'll notice he makes no comment on other than to say that when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. What do you suppose he's getting at there? Is he saying that the old covenant was imperfect or broken? What was wrong with the old covenant? I think they were applying it wrong, like you said earlier. They made it into a ritualistic religious system where it was supposed to be something that was pointing to the, the real Messiah that was going to come. Right. And the real New Covenant. So, I was going to ask, as you were asking that question, it talks a lot in here about the Old Covenant being, you know, um, not useful and that type of thing. Is that more of a disciplinary statement to their application of the covenant? Because it can't be that God established something that was not useful. Right. So that would be my point. That, that God wouldn't wouldn't establish something that wasn't useful, purposeful, um, and good. Right. The problem wasn't the covenant. The problem was the people. <laughs> he goes on to say, he says, uh, uh, verse 8, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. <clears throat> for they did not continue in my covenant. They did, uh, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. <clears throat> in that the problem wasn't the covenant or the description of God and 
how he was going to go about redeeming humanity by providing a way to come into his presence by uh, covering sin. Right? Because the, the whole atonement ritual was about a covering. Right? Rather, what God wanted to do is he wanted to remediate the sin problem. He didn't want to just cover it up. He wanted it to um, be completely removed. Because you can't just cover it up. I mean, we all know that. Uh, if you're doing house maintenance and you have a problem, say you got a leaky faucet, right? Well, you can put a towel down underneath that faucet and just hope that the towel soaks it up and the evaporation takes its course and gets the water out of the way so that you don't notice it drip, drip, drip underneath the sink. But what will happen 20 years later? you got a dry run. You're replacing the floor. You're replacing the wall. Uh, you're not speaking of experience. <laughs> One of the things I did when I was in Colorado was plumbing. My, my folks needed uh, some plumbing work on their cabin, so... It's like, yeah, no problem. I can do it in a day. It's like butter, you know. And, uh, I get there, and I did the plumbing in a day. And I got to, you know, you, the, the last thing you do is you got to complete the whole job before you can repressurize the system unless you figured out that you're going to do it in sections, which is a whole other puzzle. Um, and so I, I pressurize the system, and I go through, and it's like, no leak, no leak, no leak, no leak, no leak, no leak. And it's like, yes! And then I, I put my hand behind a an old uh, faucet that connected to a bathtub, and I could feel the sweat. It wasn't dripping, but I could feel the sweat. And I thought, you know, that sweat's going to get me. <laughs> so I get out my crescent wrench, and I figure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop this leak now. I'm going to dip it in the butt. So, I, uh, of course, it's a 15-inch crescent, so you can put a lot of torque on it, so you got to be careful. Copper pipe. So I give it a little, little twist, and the drip gets bigger. <laughs> this is not going the direction I wanted to go. <laughs> so we quick took showers and then we turned off the water for the night. Because I wasn't going to let it sit there and drip. In fact, just letting it sit there and drip with the towel, uh, thinking maybe that'll you know appease the, the water problem in the night, didn't work. So we turned off the water. That problem, that leak, cost me four days. I did all the plumbing in one day. That leak cost me four days. And what we had to do, and guess what? It had been there for a long time. It turned out as a manufacturing defect, most likely. And that there was a crack in the fitting. It was not obvious that when I put stress on it, it revealed its crackness. And uh, so I ended up having to... Uh, Replace this thing twice because the first one I put in was from China and it was defective. <laughs> <laughs> ding ding. But it, I, I, the reason I'm elaborating on this is because it's kind of a similar process. You know, God's not going to just cover over something, He wants to fix it. And fixing it can't be done in place. I ended up having to completely replace the faucet and the fittings. I could not do a nice solder job to, to stop this leak, I had to completely replace the fitting. New brass, new copper, 
and I didn't want to do it. I was on vacation. <laughs> I can't imagine how God felt. <laughs> and look what these guys did. Um, so that's what this is about. This atonement is about redeeming our hearts, correcting the problem. And so the first covenant, the problem was not the covenant. The problem was the people. That they had made this a ritual and not uh, a song in the heart, a song of praise, like where we started with songs this morning. There was something wrong in the heart. And that's what this is about. He's giving us an exposition on the covenant, the new covenant, which is about a new heart. It says in verse 10, chapter 8, I will put my law into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So he wants to start out with the declaration of what he's going to do, what God's going to do. Right? So he starts with that declaration. And I will tell you that the key verses to this whole section that I just read, which is a long section, right? It's like a long section. Uh, eight, nine, and half a ten. The key verses are chapter nine, verses 13 and 14. So if you learn nothing else from me babbling up here, mark that in your Bible. Verses 13 and 14, chapter nine. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God that's the whole point to cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve the living God this is an application point, too, by the way. So, I would ask you, what is the conscience? Who can tell me what the conscience is? The Holy Spirit. Pardon? The Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit uh, witnesses to our con conscience. What is, what is the conscience when we think about the conscience as part of a part of a person. Awareness. Awareness. If you're conscious of something, you're aware of something. Okay, so that would be consciousness in the, the form of awareness. I'm thinking of conscience like Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> you know what you're supposed to do. Shoulders. <laughs> you know what you're supposed to do, right? So Paul's talking about his conscience in the duty chapter of Romans, right? I, uh, I know what I'm supposed to do. I don't do what I'm supposed to do. Uh, do the things I'm not supposed to do. Here I am standing in a pile of dude. What do I do? Right. <laughs> <laughs> he's talking, he's reflecting conscience. Uh, a definition of conscience would be the sense of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, conduct intentions, or character, together with a feeling of obligation to do right or to be good. So it's a sense of moral goodness. What I would point out is that it is not the means to tell right from wrong. Right? 
So God put in us um, moral law. He said, this is right and this is wrong. We don't determine that. Right? But what it is, is it's a training that tells us what is right or wrong. And then insists that we do what is right, avoiding what is wrong. Again, I'll take you back to Hebrews chapter 5. Why is the guy writing this to us? Or gal? For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's not milk. And what I would say about conscience is that our conscience can sometimes be mistaken. Now, what is right and what is wrong cannot be mistaken, because God said it. He said, this is right, this is wrong. God is not mistaken. But sometimes our conscience can be mistaken. And I think that sometimes when we don't immerse ourselves in, um, in our walk in the Lord, that it's easy to become caught up in ritual. Paul is a classic example. Apostle Paul. Um, his conscience was mistaken about what was going on in the early church. He was zealous for the law, but missed the whole point of the covenant. That's why the Holy Spirit needed to have a much closer relationship to us. That veil that curtain that separated the place of worship and the, the symbology and the trappings of worship, the showbread, the lamp, the altar of incense, that curtain that separated it from the actual presence of God had to be torn down, had to be removed. And only one could do that. Question? Oh, I thought you had a question. Oh, I was helping her. <laughs> There's a question. On uh, uh, chapter 10, on the number three, where it talks about the golden goose not equal to sin, that seems like there's a whole intent of the, of the sacrificial system that people sin to be forgiven. Yes. The, the intent was that sins be forgiven. And, and there's more packed into. Uh, the statement of forgiveness here than just uh, a hold harmless clause. There's actually uh, a redemption that needs to occur. Uh, so let me expand on that just a little bit. Um, I always was puzzled by this. Why didn't God just say, uh, okay, you're forgiven. Why did, why did Christ have to die? Because Christ forgave sins while he was on earth. When he was present. And, and the evidence of that you find in Mark. And, and uh, I, I think specifically of the instance in Mark. Where they uh, tore the, the roof off the house. And they lowered the man on the mat. Down below. Uh, to be in Jesus' presence. Because he was totally plugged by people. And, uh, and what did Jesus say? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees. 
guys that were covenant experts just was like, what did he say? And Jesus said, just so that you know that the Son of Man can forgive sins on earth, he said to the man of Mac, get up and walk. So the forgiveness of sins was not, in that instance, the whole harmless clause was not um, was not tied to anything other than God's word. In other words, a death was not required in order for God to hold you harmless. To say, okay, I will not look at your sin. You're forgiven and I hold you harmless. However, the penalty of sin was still present. And that penalty had to be paid. So that's where I talk about the redemption aspect of it. Um, that Christ, when he died on the cross, not only forgave sin, but he made it possible for us to be um, justified from sin. So there's a justification aspect, which is a legal standing, but then there is a sanctification, glorification aspect also, which is sin being removed and ultimately having no place in us, just as it has no place in God. So when, when we read here about... The blood of bulls and goats could in no way uh, bring about forgiveness. That there's a little bit more packed into that word. It's more than just hold harmless. It also has to do with redemption. Um, so in that sense, there is nothing magical about blood. So this is one of the things you know we get caught up in sometimes in the, the religious ritual we see that blood has some significance. Well, it's significant in what it means. It means that the life of one is shed for another. The life of God was given for you. And that's where, uh, and we're not going to have time to unpack it today, but he, he brings up the idea of a will. And that a will is uh, a declaration of one uh, that upon their death how their property that which they own is going to uh, be distributed right um, but in order for the will to become effective the one who made the will needs to die right otherwise he's still the owner well here's the puzzle how can one who has life in himself die such that that which he chooses to give can be distributed. You read about that in Revelation, chapter 5, where the Lamb is presented, the one without spot or blemish. He was the only one that was worthy to actually open the testament, open the will, open the book of prophecy. That that which God intended for humanity to be in his presence is only possible through one who has the right of inheritance. And God couldn't die, but he did. He died on the cross. So, it's a puzzle, right? Blood of bulls and goats doesn't do that. But the blood of Jesus was not presented just on a human altar. It was presented on the very mercy seat of God in heaven. 
That's what it says here. It says that when, when Jesus presented his sacrifice. What verse do you have? Uh, let, me, let me pull it out here. And how much time do I have in my hour? One minute. Okay, I can, uh, verse 11, chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So, uh, and, and there are other verses in here I can pull out, you know, rapidly scanning here. But the idea is, is that where Christ, when he, when he uh, presented his life for us, he didn't present it to the Romans. He didn't present it um, to those that were witnesses. He presented it to God in heaven. That's why his death would actually be for us. Really key to understanding how forgiveness and redemption, and I talked about hold harmless as well as correcting the problem, could occur in one act for all time. And that it brings the whole Bible revelation together, which is why we talk about being Christ-centered in our exegetical work through the Bible. Because it's really about who Christ is. From page 1 to page, however many pages you got in your Bible, to the end of Revelation. So, I am out of time. A lot more here. We're going to unpack it. I wanted to present this. Read this over a couple of times this week. Because we're going to start unpacking this in, in depth here. Uh, not so much chapter 8, because it's a very straightforward declaration of the covenant that God has made to give us uh, forgiveness through new heart. But focus on 9 and 10 up through chapter 18. We'll, that's where we'll pick up next week. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence this morning. As we are in your presence always, that Lord, our, our mind is... Uh, sometimes focused elsewhere and you bring us back to you and that's uh, the point of this Lord is training as one trains their body for a, an event or uh, in athletics similarly we need to be trained uh, to turn to you and to discern your declaration of what is right and what is good and that we can live there with. so we thank you that we've had this opportunity this morning Lord we just ask that you would continue to pick our hearts that you would uh, challenge us, that you would do all of those things to help grow us up into an image of you, Lord Jesus, that we could be your hands and your feet in this world, that we can truly be your ambassadors uh, and be effective, Lord. Uh, Father, we ask for your protection. Uh, we thank you so much for your provision for us, and Lord, we're so grateful for the way that you've served us through your life and are continuing to serve us this day. Lord, we lift to you the service this morning. ask that you powerfully enable through your Holy Spirit, um, Pastor, as he presents your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we have opportunity to celebrate 150 years, just a blink in, in uh, all of time, but nonetheless a significant event in this community. Lord, we just thank you for that. 
Lord, we ask that as we go from here that you would be with us um, in all things and that we would be conscious and aware of that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.